one of the most interesting things actually that came out of that pandemic situation was that our teams who were previously you know working to budgets and thinking about targets and bonuses when the world changed and that all kind of went up in a puff of smoke uh, we actually said Let, let's just think about how can we be entrepreneurial and innovative to get through this this phase and we saw the development of a whole bunch of new business initiatives that have actually stood the test of time. Hello and welcome to what is somehow the 200th episode of Media Voices. How are you both feeling about having reached that milestone? Really old. <laughs> <laughs> well, this is as much a thank you then to the listeners for letting us get to our 200th episode as it is to the two of you for actually making me sound halfway smart. <laughs> That's a challenge every week. <laughs> yeah, no, it's been brilliant. Thank you all, everybody, listeners, you guys, the universe. And that extract you just heard is from my interview with Duncan Tickell, who is the Chief Revenue Officer at Immediate Media. So we spoke about what he's been brought back to Immediate to focus on, how some of the podcasts are on track to bring in seven figures in revenue this year, Ooh. and uh, what he's doing to help the business maintain the gains it made during the, during the pandemic. Can you imagine bringing in seven figures on this podcast? And so onto our main story then. And Peter, I think you actually suggested this headline for this, a tale of two acquisitions. So well, we're going to be comparing and contrasting what's been going on in the US with Alden and what's happening with Politico and Axel Springer, because they are two very different approaches to media, one of which we like and one of <laughs> which we are terrified of. Yeah, and it's the, these two stories just, I don't know, they, they happen to be next to each other and they've feed and it just thought, wow, that is a very, very different way to look at um, media acquisition. The, the piece in The Atlantic is properly, properly depressing. So for those who don't know or haven't read the Atlantic piece, um, Alden Global Capital are, I suppose, a VC firm. Uh, well, a hedge fund, really. And what they do is they have been snapping up a bunch of the local and regional publishers in and around the US. And we've heard for years that their practices, once they have acquired them, have basically been to strip out all the assets, just leech as much possible value as they can, yeah. and then move on to the next one. So what is that kind of incredibly stark quote in that piece? So this guy, Charlie Johnson, who used to be a reporter on the Chicago Tribune, he says, they call Alden a vulture hedge fund. I think that's honestly a misnomer. A vulture doesn't hold a wounded animal's head underwater. This is predatory. I mean, that's the tone of this whole piece. Oh. Like that. Yeah. Uh, and he, I can't remember if it's him, but in that piece, there's a call out in the piece. says, the model is simple. Gut the staff sell the real estate, jack up subscription prices and wring out as much cash as possible. Yeah. And it's just awful. It's just, you know, if we had the bean counter counter on, it would be going <laughs> mental. Ding! Um, because that's, that's exactly, this is rapacious capitalism is it at its worst. Well, you know what it reminded me of? I, I watched Chinatown for the first time yesterday. The key plot in that is water company diverts money away from farmers arable land so they can snap up that that property at a kind of knockdown price and then redivert the 
water back, you know, turn it into real estate, make an absolute fortune. And it doesn't seem, you know, that kind of like, it was based on a real thing, but that parody of what capitalism at its worst yeah. can do yeah. seems to be almost indistinguishable from what, you know, Charlie's saying about the, yeah, the local media landscape and what Alden's doing to that in the US. When Alden started buying up, local press in the states people were quite excited by it because they thought oh this means there's a value in local press but it became evident pretty quickly that they were just doing this they were gotten time you know for the real estate or for whatever to squeeze value out uh, i mean the story they tell the atlantic we know the atlantic we love it their, their piece is brilliant um but the way they tell the story is basically when they acquired the tribune in may Two days later, they started announcing layoffs. And eventually 25% in the newsroom went. Um, and it's just, the Atlantic, the, this piece kind of details all the people that went and the work that they did in the past. Mm. You know, and, and it's a, a lot of it is about uncovering corruption or, or highlighting really good stuff that was going on in the community. Um, and then it highlights the stuff that couldn't get done because there was no resources, and it's just so stark. Was, mm. I mean, it's a really good piece, but it's brutal, absolutely brutal. And then before we can contrast this, we need to tee up what is going on with Politico and Axel Springer, which is the exact opposite side of the coin. Rather than seeing it as something, you know, as media, as something that can be asset stripped for kind of a quick book, what Politico and Axel Springer are doing actually seems a lot more about investing in the future of a particular form of media. So Esther, what is happening here with Politico and Axel Springer? Well, Axel Springer and Politico, they've kind of had a, a, a business relationship for quite a few years. Um, and I think that Axel Springer have now acquired the whole of Politico. It's a, a billion dollar deal, just yep. a casual billion dollars. Um, and one of the first things that the chief executive, Matthias Doppner, said is that he's just said, well, I'm going to expand the headcount by 10%. That's 100 people he's looking to hire. Um, he wants to do an international push. He wants to publish in several different languages, um, and he said he said he believes at Axel Springer he believes he believes quite firmly in anti-cyclical growth. Mm. Um, and he said, yeah, there's not going to be any restructuring, no synergies, no mergers, and no cost cutting. I mean, this couldn't contrast more. <laughs> um, it's, it's honestly the point where I'm like, <laughs> but what's he hiding? Because that's <laughs> that's too good a promise, you know. He's he's been at the helm of Axel Spring for quite a while, and yeah, you know, they were not a profitable company when he took over, and they now are a profitable company, um, quite profitable. Uh, and it, I think it's just I think it, I think nothing tells the story better than the fact that they hired over one thousand six hundred people during the worst period of the pandemic last year. Mm. And it just seems to always be thinking that thing that rather than seeing this as an opportunity to. Yeah, fine synergies, fire people, that sort of thing. You you look at it as an investment opportunity. I remember the the, the one it reminded me of is the um, the reach um, the reach guy a couple of months ago was just doing an interview where he just said, you know, if if we want to produce better local journalism, we need to invest. We need to hire people. We need to hire local journalists. Like when you you cannot expect to get good output, good product, good journalism, good content if you're not paying for people. But what it you doesn't can get better do, by yeah. cutting. No, it doesn't. But you know what you can do is you can strip mine these companies for yeah, their resources. That is yeah. absolutely different. And you know, it, it feels a little bit like we're at a kind of an inflection point with that way. You're starting to see you're seeing these companies that are hugely profitable like 30 years ago and have been on that kind of that man, quote managed decline where they're just sort of cutting and cutting and cutting. I, I don't think that you know, I don't think most of them will be around in 10 years, whereas these companies that have sprung up sort of 
well, not that Axel Spring has sprung up recently, but the ones that have recently been investing, you know, Politico is quite new. Um, the, these are the ones that are going to almost shape the next 30 to 40 years. There's a couple of things going on. Axel Spring has always been very focused on readers, reader revenue, subscriptions, whatever. So that's part of that. What they're looking for with the likes of Politico when they bought Morning Brew and at Business Insider was more readers, more, more people that will pay for, for content. So that's part of it. The other thing that is maybe part of this issue is the local news thing or the regional news. Political, yeah. business insider, morning break, they're all kind of niche. See, this Whereas is a, yeah. the Chicago Tribune is a mass market newspaper. I didn't want to get so, too cynical about this, but yeah, it's a very, very different market. You know what I mean? It is a you, different, yeah. Um, I, I think, it, yes, they're different markets, but I think if you look at what, places like Axios are doing, they're looking at going back into those markets where these huge papers have been and have essentially shrunk and died. And they're saying, you know, are there, are there new models that can work here? You know, what, what does the future of this look like? And um, I've got, I can't remember the latest figures on Axios, but, but their, their local papers are doing very, very well. I think they've just gone and launched the paid versions of them. But Joshy was saying this on the podcast a couple of weeks ago, is that they've gone in where they used to be um, local papers that no longer serve the community. And they're saying, it's not that the demand is no longer there. It's that what was being produced wasn't serving that, and we can actually produce something that can, and people will pay for it. What's that, boom? I thumped the table. <laughs> <laughs> I was gesticulating too enthusiastically, which I don't normally do because we don't normally have cameras on. Okay, so here's, here's my question then. Cynically, do we believe that Access Spring is going to continue to invest here, or is this, I suppose, uh, one last great punt on the future of kind of that specialised... Media. No, I think Axel Springer will continue to exist, but it'll always be slightly niche. You know, they, 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 they own quite a few European newspapers that are far from niche. Who, Axel Springer? Yeah. Well, but if they're in local language in Europe, they're by definition niche. <laughs> um, and I think I found quite interesting. Uh, Press Gazette published a list of the top membership uh, membership and subscription publishers this week just in Europe and I thought what was interesting is how few people paying it takes to make those businesses work oh god again, I remember talking that, to... again that depends what you mean by what <laughs> but okay so I was talking to a couple of god maybe like two years ago now pre-pandemic definitely I was talking to a couple of other guys up in uh, DC Thompson and I was yeah, I, I, you know, intellectually, I knew these figures, but when the guy was talking about quite how few subscribers each of these local titles had to make it financially viable, I was surprised by that. Now, the fact that you don't have that level of support in the US is what's allowed Alden to come in and kind of, you know, strip mine everything mm -hmm. and just buy up everything. And things, yeah, you, you don't, you know, it's not like you're existing solely on reader revenue. It, it, it's another stream mm -hmm. you can add to your boat alongside the other things that you do. And it's just a bit more stable. Oh, absolutely. I'm not. I'm. I'm not against what Axios is doing at all. I'm not against what the Manchester Mail is doing or the. the You're just deeply cynical. No, I just. But I think he's just. just think, I, I agree with Peter. It's a. It's a completely different environment. You know, it's it not becomes like a different game. Yeah. You know, I'm. I am actually talking about what my local council is doing, rather than what's going on in the country. Unless there's some mechanism for looking across the piece, you're not you're not going to get what you used to get with these regional publishers. And then in America, the geography is very different in America. A state is the size of a country. Yeah, we've always you know the Chicago Tribune. 
you know, think, think of the Chicago Tribune. That's a big, big metro area that that is looking at. I always think of the Dallas Morning News, which is you know, <laughs> covers an area roughly the size of like Scotland, and yet it's a local title. I, do, I applaud your optimism, the way I said I love it. It's great. It keeps, <laughs> keeps me coming back every week for 200 yeah. episodes. I'm, I'm, like, I'm trying to like prop up the optimism corner of this podcast. I appreciate that. And now to the news in brief, Mike's back. That's Ooh. the one the millennial publication uh, is back with a, a new look and a new focus on pop culture rather than politics. I thought it was focused um, on pop culture anyway. Um, it was well, more political. Yeah. It started political. But I don't know. I I hope it does well. But what's the USP? Yeah, yeah. Some of the Actually, quotes I saw about this was like, oh, what really? <laughs> I think because yeah, the the idea now that you can use pop culture coverage as a as a selling point is long mm-hmm. since past. What I think is interesting here will be what their distribution strategy is. Because do you remember they were kind of a primary proponent yeah, of social, yeah. very very Facebook. like yeah, social distribution first and foremost. So I'd be very interested to see if they continue to, you know, pump money and expertise into yeah. that, or if they do try and take back control of their owned and operated platforms. I mean, Josh Josh Topolsky is, is working on it. Um, I don't know the lady that's that's working on it, but um, his stuff at the outline was great. A lot. He's got a great attitude, uh, quite quirky, um, and he's he was involved in The Verge and he was involved in Vox. So. You know, there's proper, proper credentials there. Um, so I hope it does well. But it didn't make me go, woo, this is amazing. <laughs> and moving on, Black Ballad has received more of the investment that it richly deserves. So it's got £335,000. Uh, this time it's got it from a mix of private investors and crowdfunding backers. So it's going to use the money to invest in content, some new writers and new subscription tech, which should hopefully help it diversify its revenue stream slightly more, and also to deliver upon its mission to provide a voice for Black British voices. So delighted that Black Ballad's finally receiving much more of the attention that it deserves, and hopefully we'll get them back on in a couple of months, years, to chat about what's happened since. Can Twitter make us all nicer to one another? <laughs> I um, knew that was going to happen. I was looking, I was watching Peter on the monitor just to be like, oh, what is he going to break? Yeah. Classic <laughs> Betteridge Law headline. <laughs> <laughs> well, anyway, um, for Bloomberg, um, Kurt Wagner has examined whether the incremental little changes Twitter has made, like saying, have you actually read that article, can actually <laughs> add up to something genuinely game-changing for the bird site. So uh, what do we reckon? Can it? Yes? <laughs> uh, so his thing, I applaud the fact that they are making an effort to do stuff. I feel like so much of social and how we, you know, how we have learned to use social media to talk to one another is so now ingrained that either they go super strict with it Anyway, no, Twitter's not going to get any better. It's the worst. <laughs> like you said, that's that's social media. Yeah. Even as it's reaping the benefits of the Squid Game, Netflix, uh, that's its biggest show for a long time, is taking a bunch of criticism for firing a trans employee at suspects of leaking metrics in the wake of a transphobic David Chappelle show on its platform. I, This story just, again, is one of those that just makes me want to not look at the news anymore yeah i think it's you know um, big companies are not your friend and it's just depressing again jesus this is another we've got to find can we do another good news special please please can we 
<laughs> yeah, absolutely. Remember, I was just about to say. A while back. Yeah, I do. I was just about to say, happy 200th episode. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, I've got a good one to finish on then. Okay. It doesn't involve, it doesn't involve like murder, Thank climate God. change, um, transphobia or anything else. So the New York Times is actually beta testing an app called New York Times Audio. Um, and I'm actually surprised there's not been more about this this week. Um, but the idea is that all audio products under the Times banner will sit under it. So they'll have their podcasts, their read aloud journalism, um, things from Auden, which is their uh, sort of readout um, app. But they're actually also going to include audio journalism from a, a, quote, a curated set of publishers, including BuzzFeed News and New York Magazine, Rolling Stone. And these are all Auden um, clients. Mm. And um, Mark Stenberg has actually written a really good piece in his newsletter, which we'll link to. Um, this says that actually if, if the Times can build a standalone audio product that succeeds in attracting repeat listeners, it could actually mark a new sort of era in the audio industry. And I could talk for ages about this, but this is the news in brief. So I'm not going to. Yeah. So I, I'd actually missed that, the fact that they were bringing these kind of these other publishers on board with that. I know. Like, I, th- I think that a couple of articles have been written about it, but very few people have just picked up on that part of it. Do you reckon this is going to be, obviously this is this is a great opportunity then for the Times to rest its audio work away from kind of the, the likes of Spotify, you know, everywhere else that's making a big play to be the place to go to for kind of podcasts and that read aloud audio. But is this, is you know, we've spoken about this before, is this not just an example of the Times being basically the only people who can do this? Because they have the scale, they have the reach, they have the subs, they have the revenue, like it's them and Washington Post. I think it depends at the scale that, that this works at. You know, you could imagine, I don't know, say you got a dozen independent sport podcasts together mm. and ran that through an app, or a dozen cooking shows and ran that through the app. So that niche thing where people can say, subscribe to us and you'll have constant new content in this particular niche that works if you want to do it at the scale that the new york times is talking about yeah you've got to be the new york times or spotify or whatever. i think th- this is going to address one of the biggest problems with podcasting which is that pe- there's just so much choice and people don't know where to start if they want to get into yeah. it and yeah. yeah spotify trying to fix that but honestly they keep being like oh try this podcast try this podcast it's, it's just whereas if you know you can go to the new york times and you can get yeah. There's maybe a choice of ten rather than ten thousand. I can see that that's going to be really, really appealing to people, and you know, it, it it can't hurt any podcast. It can't hurt the industry to get more people listening. And it comes back to that brand trust idea. Mm-hmm. Do you trust the New York Times to curate a selection that you're going to like? Um, so I think I know, right? <laughs> uh, who wants to start like a media podcast conglomerate? Yeah, we should, which should be us. Okay, I'm going to edit this out so that we can take that. This time next year, we'll be millionaires. (laughs) For this week's episode, I spoke to Duncan Tickell, who is Chief Revenue Officer at Media Media. It's not actually the first time he's worked at the business, so I started by asking him how his appointment late last year as Chief Revenue Officer actually came about. First and foremost, um, it came about because... um, Clearly, I'd worked in the business for a significant period before. I was one of the original founding members of the leadership team of Immediate. I then took two years out consulting, so exposed myself to a a number of different businesses, got a broader range of experiences, which was really interesting and helpful. 
but then uh, in the middle of last year, um, as the business was coming back into growth, it was clear that that, that a role, that the, the role of a CRO to think about accelerating revenue growth, uh, be that in existing um, non-circulation revenues, which is my area of responsibility, was was required. Um, and look, immediate's a great business. I was very fortunate to spend uh, the majority of my the, the the most recent years of my career there. I was also very uh, lucky to get uh, some new experiences, which actually built on all the experiences I'd had at Immediate. Um, and you know, as I mentioned, it's a great business. The culture here is probably our biggest standout feature in terms of being a great place to work. So. Um, really, it became an easy decision when 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 Tom came to me and said, "Actually, I've been reflecting. We think we've uh, missed some of what you bring to the business. Uh, could I persuade you to come back?" <laughs> so that must be nice to know, sort of mid-pandemic. It will, and and you know, I've, when I reflect on on that, you know, the pandemic was a really interesting period to be a consultant. It won't surprise you to say that that the phone stopped ringing, particularly around. Uh, the end of March last year. But what became clear to me was that there were things that I loved in consultancy, you know, diversity of the businesses that you're exposed to, uh, different kind of projects, getting that unique opportunity to go in and use your experience to advise people. But, you know, on the flip side of that, um, I really missed teams. I missed working with a, uh, you know, a core group of people that you share your experiences with, that you effectively, they become close colleagues and friends. Um, and um, so the opportunity to go back into that environment was was very attractive in the middle of a pandemic when you'd seen a lot of the inside of your own four walls. Did, did Immediate have any sort of role that focused on this area at all before you sort of rejoined? Well, what we have is lots of sector experts. So, uh, you know, my role isn't to replace all the sector experts. You know, I've got a lot of experience in advertising. We've got a... Uh, you know, uh, within each of those uh, different areas, um, we we have the operational practitioners, but it's actually about my role is trying to take a more strategic view to think about where might there be opportunity? Where where are we now? Where do we want to get to over a period of time? So, you know, even by the time that I returned, we'd, we were building out a really successful commerce business. Our audio business was growing. Um, the advertising business actually was in was was starting to get back to be, being in rude health, uh, and so it's actually about my role is very much about thinking what does what what do the next steps look like to to accelerate that growth. Um, so apart from um, things like commerce and audio, um, and obviously I'd love you to tell me all your secrets here. What other things have you got your eye on? I think at the moment, you know, if we're thinking very very strategically around. Uh, you know the, the the where we're making our investments. So if you start with 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 the advertising business, you know we're um, certainly cognizant that we're good at some stuff, but there's there's plenty more opportunity. So I mentioned the audio already, and we can we can come back to that. But that's been a surprisingly strong growth area for us. Our history extra podcast, we have taken that on a journey where it's now going to become a seven figure revenue stream for us uh, very shortly wow that gets over four million listens a month 
So it's become a real area of growth. So, so what we're looking to do is scale that business into the other verticals in which, in which we operate. So be that food or gardening and uh, Radio Times is the latest addition to that stable. Uh, within advertising, we think there's a big opportunity around uh, the first party data that we offer, um, uh, other opportunities in video. So, you know, you've got a, a whole suite of opportunity there. I think, you know, within our core brands, we also think there's big opportunity around building out consumer revenue streams. So I mentioned commerce already. That business has significantly scaled for us. It, you know, we really benefited during lockdown, as, as many others did, in terms of uh, those deep connections that we have with our consumers, the fact they trust our brands um, in a way that perhaps other publishers don't get that enjoyment with the the heritage that they bring, uh, you know, and that's a business that's grown by 10x since 2018. It's now well over 10% of our digital revenue um, and is 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 still in that phase where we're, we're, we're doubling revenue growth um, uh, pretty much year over year for the last three years. So that's been a really big area. I think that the, the, the third organic area that I would build out is is thinking about paid content now and we're going to be a lot bolder about that so whilst we're not in a position to, to say exactly what those moves will be at this point you will see in the months ahead some significantly bolder moves around um, some of those brands where we feel that, uh, the content is valuable enough to go behind paywalls uh, where um, the app strategy will evolve to a paid app strategy as opposed to being completely free to wear and ad funded so you know there are going to be a number of different um, uh, areas of focus but I would call those out as the primary ones yeah um, are you considering events at all or is, is that still sort of taking a bit of a backseat given the pandemic situation well, it's not taking a back seat. Um, you know, I think our events business have done an amazing job of navigating their way through um, uh, through the last year and a half. But um, it is, and it's beginning to come back on stream. Uh, but however, the reality is, it's not coming back uh, just like that. It's going to take a little bit of time, I think, for people to um, really feel comfortable. Uh, and so, you know, it won't surprise you that was the, the, the one bit of our business. So when we when, when we look back to 2020, um, our business actually hit its budget all bar the events business, which was interesting in of itself. <laughs> but the events business was, was, was completely shuttered. Um, and, you know, more recently, we have had a number of uh, events get off the ground. So we've... Um, done uh, a good food event and a Gardener's World event in in the NEC in August. Um, we're doing some smaller scale events, but it's going to take a little bit of time for that to get fully up and running. But we, you know, we're, we're quite op optimistic about events in the sense that when you can put them on, there there is a very, very significant level of demand for people to experience stuff again. And I think that's mm. really, really clear uh, from from what we see, but also what you see across the market, people are really keen uh, to be able to get back out and experience some level of normality again. Yeah. You mentioned at the start of that that you're looking to focus more on audio. Is that going to involve sort of launching more audio podcasts and products across other brands? Or is that going to be very much looking at what you've already got and building out the sort of, well, I suppose, growing the audience and the advertising opportunity? Or both? <laughs> Tick all of the above. <laughs> so what we've seen in audio is, you know, certainly in terms of 
subscribers it it takes time to build and so history has been on a history extra has been on a long journey of, of building subscribers to get to the you know incredibly strong position it's been today mm. uh, it, it finds itself in today but equally within that we found that the amount of content i.e the number of episodes that you put out um makes a big difference and you know through testing and learning we've arrived at what we think is the optimal level for for that product um which is four times a week um or four different episodes each week um and and i think we're going on that journey with with our other brands now which is to work out what formats work what type of content works um it'll be different in different markets um and, and we're starting that journey with, as I, as I mentioned earlier, Radio Times, BBC Good Food and BBC Gardener's World. And I'm sure there will be more to follow. Yeah. And actually, when it, when it comes to the advertising piece, what's really interesting is that if you have a successful podcast, the demand is there from an advertising perspective. You know, so, so within that uh, History Extra podcast, we have a very strong direct sold sponsorship line complemented by um you know some some network sales of aggregated network uh, audio advertising that that as i mentioned is, is building this this business that's on the trajectory very shortly to hit a, a run rate of over seven figures a year so in that sense if you can sort of take that as a blueprint for the other podcasts that's some really low-hanging fruit absolutely and you know they, they, they will take some time to get to the point of 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 history extra but equally mm. it's one of those pockets where you see a real real opportunity and growth and you know it comes back to that point which is i think within our dna you know immediate dna is to 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 really focus on markets where you help people to get um the most out of the things that they love to do every day uh be that cooking gardening, cycling, uh, understanding entertainment. And and actually what we're finding is that people want to consume that that content and inform their, their passions across multiple formats. I mean, it's sort of linked to that. Um, immediate, I suppose, has emerged over the last year and a half as one of the pandemic's winners. Like, I hate to use that term, but the, I can't think of another way to describe it. I, I suppose when it comes to both subscriptions, profitability, audience growth, things like that. So why do you think this is when that there are other, plenty of other publishers in the UK that have really struggled? I think that, you know, we found ourselves in markets, as I just mentioned a moment ago, which help people get the most out doing the things that they love and particularly you know during a period when people were confined to their homes um, those passion points around home-based activity you know gardening watching the tv (laughs) cooking food it wasn't surprising that we saw a significant increase in in demand for that what we were surprised about is quite how committed those consumers were um, in terms of creating those incredibly loyal relationships such as subscriptions so it's well documented that we've had two consecutive 
or, or the last two ABC periods were particularly strong from a growth perspective, that we've now got well over 1.1 million subscribers. And those aren't relationships that just go away. So, so the, you know, for us, the great thing around that is that those are relationships that we will maintain and continue to build on and think how we, how we uh, you know, continue to, to fulfill their information needs. And that's very different from some of those sectors which are more generalist, you know, so and it wasn't just immediate, right, that benefited during those periods. You know, as, as we know, news and current affairs was very strong. Uh, and, and so it was around that moment in time when, uh, you know, we, we, we found ourselves in a position to, to really help people get through a very, very, very difficult time. Um, and the last thing I say on all of that, I mean, this has always been from day one of creating immediate, uh, which is almost 10 years ago. It's been really, really important to us to be in those markets uh, where people um, are passionate about the subject that they're consuming and not to stray into generalist markets, which, um, you know, experience says have been more adversely affected through that disrupting uh, or, or the disruption in, in media that's been taking place for you know the last 20 years or so. I think there were a couple of brands that closed quite early on in the pandemic, though, weren't they? I, I assume that, that that would probably be before you joined, well, rejoined. Yeah, and, and, and you know, I think the, the reality in the print media sector is that there are still, there's still an incredibly long tail of magazines, some of which regrettably are a bit marginal. And, you know, when when in those early days of the pandemic, particularly given that WH Smith was closed, which is one of the biggest single buying points for special interest magazines, those that were uh, on the edges found it very difficult. And that clearly wasn't just um, com- com- confined to a media. It, it was the experience of a number, number of other publishers as well. And they were clearly very difficult decisions, but but nonetheless, in those difficult times, I think we had to respond to where we found ourselves at that point. Uh, I think the one thing that we've consistently focused on and actually became a, um, a real point of strength, actually, over the last 18 months is the, uh, the real commitment to uh, creating a fantastic culture and the focus that Immediate has on its people. You know, that was a big, big part of why I chose to return to the business. Uh, you know, last year we we actually um, really thought long and hard about how can we support people through those very difficult times. That manifested itself with way more regular communication to the business, both from the leadership team and through cascading right through to managers. Uh, it also uh, manifested itself through the creation of a big network of communities, be that our LGBTQ plus community, be that our BAME community, be that our parenting community. You know, there were a whole group where we really tried to replicate that connectivity that existed um, before as being part of a great culture. Um, You know, and, and during that period of pandemic, when others were cutting back, we actually really invested in the support infrastructure that we put behind our people. We hired uh, a, a DNI lead within the business. We've hired an L&D lead within the business. So we really saw it as a time that actually uh, this was the time to invest in, in our people. 
and I think you know the, the one tiny anecdote that I would share, um, which which I think tells you an awful lot about the business was that you know like many we found ourselves in that very very difficult situation where as as a as an initial reaction we thought things were going to be really tough and and we asked the business to to share some of that pain in terms of um making a uh, a modest sal- salary sacrifice uh, but but actually quite shortly when it became clear that 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 trading recovered faster than we thought um and that that the outturn for the year was going to be significantly better than we thought. Uh, we actually got to a place where we 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 paid it back to everybody within the business um, as a mark of and an acknowledgement of the tremendous work that they put in through what was a very difficult period. On a slightly more positive note, are there any particular highlights from from your brand? Well, I mean, we've started to talk. <laughs> we start to talk some about uh, some of them already. You know, I think that that the growth of that audio business is is one. I mean, I'd also pull out um, digital advertising as a second for us last year because as our audiences grew and as the the the, the market started to recover, uh, there was very strong demand for for digital advertising, and we ended the year up. Um, well ahead of, of I, I think ahead of market, but you know well into double digits up year over year in what had been a very challenging year uh, would be another highlight I would I would unquestionably pull out. We've talked about commerce. Uh, you know we, we we doubled that business last year. Um, I would also think about some of the the new innovative ways that we responded. So. One of the most interesting things, actually, that came out of that pandemic situation was that our teams who were previously, you know, working to budgets and thinking about targets and bonuses, when the world changed and that all kind of went up in a puff of smoke, uh, we actually said, let's just think about how can we be entrepreneurial and innovative to get through this, this phase? And we saw the development of a whole bunch of new business initiatives that have actually stood the test of time. So a, another one that I'd really call out was our webinar business. You know, we we, we didn't have a webinar business. Uh, webinar businesses were, were pretty much before that uh, confined yeah. to B2B businesses. But, you know, we had... Um, we, we, we've now built a business that's had well over 30,000 paid attendees, Um we're again on that a, a run rate to make it a another seven figure business uh, across our portfolio of brands. So we've just found we found some really interesting new ways to connect with people during that period. Uh, and last but not least, and I mentioned it before, you know that 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 whole thing around subscriptions, you know, it, it felt a little bit like UK consumers fell in love with uh, getting the content that they love delivered through their door on a regular basis um you know last year alone we we, we grew our subscription file by 22 percent. so it was another real highlight that webinar business are there any brands that that particularly does well on or is that just across the board that's expected to be seven figures the, the two really successful ones for that business have been or, or the most scaled ones have been on bbc gardeners world and bbc good food um, you know, the, good the, food webinars. Wow! <laughs> absolutely, and uh, like the interesting thing was the 
the the particular the, the one that really told us that was something there, believe it or not, and it's, it might not come as a surprise when I tell you, was a was a sourdough masterclass that we did on BBC Good Food. Of course. Early in the pandemic, you know, when everyone was talking about making sourdough, we did a webinar masterclass on how to make sourdough, and that really showed us that there's an appetite for being able to, you know. Get into that place where you're showing really high value instructional content uh, that, that that's more akin to a learning business than just a straight content business. Were those sort of things done live and people would just sort of join live or is that something you produce as a webinar and then it's available on video? So uh, the initial um, broadcast, for want of a better phrase, is, is live. So there is initially a live event and clearly the, the, the advantage of attending these things live is that you get the interactivity, but we also make it available in an archive where you lose some of that interactivity. But by far and away, the majority of the paying attendees choose to attend the live event. Um, and I suppose from your perspective as Chief Revenue Officer, what are you doing to maintain these gains that we made as, I suppose, normal life makes a return? I suppose we don't quite know what that's going to look like. Well, look, I think the, 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 the first is just that point around recognising that we're in an incredibly fortunate position to have some very trusted brands that have incredibly deep deep relationships with the people who consume the content of those brands. You know, whilst you know all, all the different initiatives that we've described are incredibly important, uh, you know, first and foremost, it's it's really important that we maintain the relationship with those consumers. We continue to solve their problems, to make them get the most out of their passions, and 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 we very strongly believe that actually. Um, the you know the, the those enduring relationships um, can be maintained by ensuring that we continue to serve their needs. You know, clearly, subscription relationships by their nature tend to be very long term. Um, mm-hmm. And whilst I've absolutely no doubt that some of the heat will go out of the growth in consumption that we've seen in in recent years. You know, at present, we're 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 actually pleasantly surprised at at, at how uh, consumption rates are being maintained, even as we 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 go into a world where people are going back out and doing the things that aren't necessarily completely focused on the home. Um, and then the last thing we ask all our guests is, what the last thing is you read or saw that really affected you? So I think the. Uh, the thing that probably, and it's a little bit of a quirky one actually, um, and it's the one that, that I think probably most people are talking about at the moment, which is uh, I have been forced by my son to watch Squid Games. Um, and, and, you know, it, it's, not, it's not a profound thing, but it has actually uh, been a <laughs> surprisingly addictive, great watch. Um, nearly as good as James Bond, which I also saw saw at the weekend. Um, but but I think um, you know just that the fact that it's managed to it's one of those things that's managed to really catch a moment and catch a zeitgeist um, made it thoroughly enjoyable. So you may not have heard because you've had your fingers in your ears. Maybe <laughs> we've had. 
We have a daily newsletter bringing you the four most important stories in publishing and media every single day. Sign up on our website, voices.media, or you know it, you can sign up from that hell site. <laughs> Just go to our profile at Media Voices Pod on Twitter. And as we said at the top of the episode, we couldn't have got to the 200th episode without the listeners' support. And if you do feel like taking that kind of whatever goodwill you have towards the Media Voices team, please do go to our Ko-fi page, um, which you can get to easily by going to voices.media slash support and either kicking us a monthly contribution or just a one-off donation. Whatever you choose to do, know that it makes our day every single time. And finally, if you, like the New York Times, have your own publisher podcast, um, we have the Publisher Podcast Awards, which are now open for entries until December the 10th. So we've had winners in the past, everybody from the New Statesman to the Atlantic to also smaller publishers as well, like Review Media. Um, I mean, they, they they swept the board last time. Mm-hmm. Um, so whether you're a big publisher or a small publisher, if you've got a great podcast, do tell us about it. You can go to publisherpodcastawards.com. But until next week, when we'll be back with our 201st episode somehow, that's a very scary number. Thank you so much for listening. Please do tell your friends and goodbye. the fuck is going on with my hair i'm not sure <laughs> i've been looking I, at it the whole time i've been resisting commenting on it yeah, yeah. <laughs> i'm not sure the video thing it's is really the best funny. way to go over here i wonder if it was something you deliberately done spiked it up like jed would at the front yeah it's okay it's got a kind of jed up <laughs> the hell? see this is why we should be doing it on youtube all right should we wrap this up before we laugh at peter's hair yes <laughs> <laughs>